Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Again, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on the Hill. If I didn't meet you at the beginning of the service, just wanna say welcome. We're so glad that you are here today. If you are a guest with us this morning, you will find, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this little blue card in your seat. You can fill this out. It just has a, a couple ways we can get in contact with you. Uh, for doing so, we will uh, actually send you a $5 gift card to Braska Coffee Shop, which is right around the corner, as well as make a $5 donation from a list of charities that we will send to you via email. So we'd love to follow up with you and get to help you get to know City on a Hill a little bit and help you get connected here. Um, also, if you see anybody come in in a minute, like there may be a few people who show up late, make sure you welcome them and help them find a place to sit, scoot in if you need to do all that. Um, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel is, means good news, uh, good news that we were once separated from God because of our sin, but now in Jesus, because Jesus came and died the death that you and I deserve as penalty for our sins rose again from the dead because he did that and because he died for us and rose again, we can have new life in him. And so for anyone who trusts Jesus as Lord, they can be saved. And so if you've not entered into that life-changing relationship with God through Jesus, I would love to talk with you about how to do so this morning. Secondly, community, God created us for relationships. And so we were created to be in relationship with other people. Uh, we were, it was, in fact, it, in the beginning, it said the man, it was not good the man was alone. We were created to enjoy and spend time with each other. And so we do this as the church when we spread out into community groups that meet throughout the city during the week to study God's word, to encourage each other, and to love our neighbors. So if you're not connected to a community group, let us know. We'd love to help you get involved with one. And lastly, mission, good news should be told. We tell stories all the time. And so we have the best story in the world that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. So we tell other people about it, but also live lives shaped by what Jesus has done for us. And so we love and care for our neighbors in the same ways that Jesus has loved and cared for us. A few announcements before we get into the text today. Uh, for our members, just a reminder tonight, we're having a member meeting. So for our covenant members, um, we have a meeting here at five o'clock. It's gonna be downstairs in the back of the building in what is called the fellowship hall. Just come here through the back door. That's uh, for our, mem- our covenant members. Uh, then coming up on Wednesday, March 2nd, we're starting Lent. So Wednesday, March 2nd is Ash Wednesday. We're gonna be having an Ash Wednesday service here at the church at 6 p.m. It's gonna be a very short service. And we're gonna begin to look at what it looks like to lean into our sins, asking God to continually expunge sin from our life. And, and, and Ash Wednesday, if you've never been a part of this, is a really beautiful picture of this. That we were, we were into ashes we will go, into ashes, and, and from those ashes we rise in Christ. And so, um, and so we want to look at that at 6 p.m. We have a very short service. We will have um, uh, child care for that. So uh, that's a Wednesday, March 2nd. Then coming up on Sunday, March 6th, we have a baby dedication class. So if you, are, if you have a new baby uh, who you would like to dedicate to the Lord as a part of this church, come to this class. The class lasts about 20 minutes. It shouldn't last very long. We will talk through what all that entails. And then coming up the following Sunday on March 13th, we're having a baptism class. So if you are interested in being baptized, we're looking at having some baptisms around Easter. And so if you would love to do that, we would love to talk about what it means to take that next step of faith in following Jesus if you have not been baptized. 
And then lastly, our leader lab. So if you if you are not currently leading at City on a Hill, but have a desire to do so, we encourage you to jump into this. It's um, kind of a self-paced uh, leadership module. It's all done online. And then we get together and we uh, do a monthly cohort where we talk through. And at the end of this, the, the intention is to help you find your place of service and leadership at City on a Hill. So you can be involved in this by texting the word LEAD to 617-958-6008. And we'll send you an application via text. You can fill that out and we'll get you connected to that leader lab. Uh, This morning, we continue in the book of Ephesians and we have a good one, a doozy this morning. This will be a great message for us today. Uh, Some of you heard that, saw that uh, scripture reading. We're like, okay, we're we're locking in. Here we go. Uh, I want to say thank you to Aaron uh, last week who who preached for us, uh, our pastor at City on a Hill in Brighton, uh, helping us understand what it looks like for the spirit to help us live like a family. How do we live like a family? How do we, uh, through the work of the Spirit, do all these things and love each other in this way? And how do we make wise decisions as the church? And I just wanna really second what Aaron said last week, that we don't make decisions on our own. We don't come up with a decision and then bring it to people and rubber stamp it. Like we actually should work through these things in community. There's wisdom in counsel. And so I encourage you, if you're married, work decisions out with your spouse. If, you're, if you have roommates, work out those decisions with your roommates. If you're in a community group, talk through major decisions with your community group. There's wisdom in that. Not that other people necessarily have to tell you what to do, but they can give you a vantage point that you may not see. So I really do highly encourage that. And so this morning, we're actually going to be starting sort of a mini-series within the larger series. I I used to love watching British dramas. A couple years ago, I got into watching every British drama I possibly could on Netflix. If there was a British accent, I was watching it. And so I noticed that as you watch a British show, they don't call their seasons seasons, they call them series. So series one is season one, series two is season two. And so we're kind of going into a series this morning within our greater series on how the gospel shapes and changes our relationships, how the gospel transforms us through our relationships. So we're going to get kind of granular. We're going to get really focused over the next four weeks. And we're going to be spending two weeks looking at the idea of marriage. Uh, We're going to be spending a week uh, looking at children. And then finally a week looking at the idea of work and how the gospel transforms all three of these. And these are three of our greatest concerns in life, our relationships and and, uh, having children, not having children, and how we can work and do things that are work that's fulfilling, but also God glorifying. And so today we're going to be starting our first sermon on marriage. We're going to actually jump to kids next week because of some scheduling and then come back to marriage in two weeks. And so I want to make a few comments about the idea of marriage as we jump in this morning. Now, first of all, many here are not married. There are several in our congregation who are single, who are not married. And you may be wondering, why did I get out of bed this morning for a sermon on marriage? Um, it's, it's okay. If you, whether you're single, widow, divorced, there's something relevant for you in this text this morning that marriage is pointing to. And we're going to talk about that here in just a bit. The, the other idea is not everyone here is a Christian. I want to assume that every single person in this room knows Jesus. And so you may hear some things this morning. First of all, we're glad you're here. We're so thankful you would come and explore what it looks like to know Jesus with us. Um, But also you may hear some stuff that sounds kind of weird. You may hear some stuff that is hard or seems strange to you. And my hope, and this is what every relationship should do and what marriage should ultimately do is point you to Jesus. So this morning, this is not just a sermon about best tips on marriage. This is a sermon that should point us to the perfect love of Jesus Christ for all of us. And the next, there's no way I can cover this in two weeks. 
Um, there's no way I can say everything that needs to be said about marriage in two weeks. On the screen, you'll see some, some uh, additional reading that I would highly suggest to you um, as you consider the topic of marriage. And the first is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. They co-write this book. It's a fantastic picture of the beauty of marriage, some real good practical tips. Secondly, from Kathy Keller is Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. I would highly suggest that book as well. And then two books by Sam Alberry: Is God Anti-Gay? and Seven Myths About Singleness. Sam Alberry writes this as a single celibate Anglican priest um, who is, who is same-sex attracted. And so he writes from a very unique vantage point that gives a beautiful picture of how to follow Christ in this. And so some incredible reading I would highly suggest that you read. But as we jump into the topic of marriage, what the New Testament says about marriage seems very controversial. Uh, what the New Testament says about how we are to interact as married couples, there are some hard sayings. And I think part of that is that we bring a lot of cultural baggage into the idea of marriage. There's a lot of cultural baggage that gets brought in so that when we read words like we read this morning, it can make us think of words like abuse or words like subjugation. And I wanna be extremely clear that if anyone ever uses scripture like this as an excuse for abuse, or harsh language, or to subjugate another, they are not reading the Bible correctly, and they do not understand the gospel. Um, that would be a wrong application of the word that we're reading this morning. If we read this, we should see a beautiful picture of mutual enjoyment and submission to one another. We're gonna talk about that over these two sermons. But we tend to jump into two extremes when it comes to our views on marriage. The first, culturally, is that marriage is ultimate. It is the thing you have to do in order to live a fulfilled life. You, in order to be enough, you better be married. And if you're not married, something's wrong with you. In order to be complete or fulfilled, you have to be married. Our culture does not do us any favors because our culture loves to sentimentalize and over-romanticize marriage. How many of you have ever watched an old Disney princess movie? What happens at the end of every Disney princess movie, right? There's a wedding and a carriage and everybody lives happily ever after. They don't show you when Prince Charming and, and Cinderella are working through all of her childhood trauma, right? They, they don't show you what it looks like to live with an abusive mother, right? They, they don't show you any of that. They, you, know, you can imagine Prince Charming saying, hey, Cinderella, could you, could you pick your slippers up? You left them in the floor. And she's like, Charming, I, I just can't do it. You don't understand. My stepmother made me clean all the time. I, I can't possibly do it. I can't do it anymore. And he's like, but it feels like we're living in a rat's nest. And she's like, the rats are my friends. And so and she, he's like, that's it. I'm calling my mom. They don't show that relational dynamic. They don't show that it doesn't always end up happily ever after. And in fact, the church, we don't do any more favors to that. We do a, we do a bad job. We don't help because implicitly or explicitly what we say is to fully live as a Christian, you need to be married. We say you need to find someone. We think, well, I'm gonna set you up with this person or that person. And it's not a bad desire. But if we look biblically, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 actually tell us that being single may be of greater advantage to serving the Lord because you have one sole focus. Sam Alberry says, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency that both of these lenses show us a picture of the gospel and that we need both within the church. We need married couples. We need single people. We need those who have been widowed to fully image what it means to be the, the church and also fully help us see the beauty of marriage. Sam Walberry goes on that it's not whether you're single or whether you're married that's better, but it's the question is, will I plunge myself fully daily in trusting Jesus Christ alone? The other extreme is that we view marriage as useless or hopeless. I saw my parents in a loveless marriage and there's no way I'm gonna do that. 
I, I'm, I'm not doing that. I look at what marriage says in the Bible, and that's completely outdated. That's completely outdated, the idea of marriage. And why can't I just live with this person? Or why can't we just date long-term? And there's lots of practical statistics that we'll actually get into in a couple of weeks about uh, the idea of why there's some, some wisdom, just practically, culturally, even if you're not a Christian, of why celibacy before marriage and why um, living together, like not living together before marriage actually you know, can lead to flourishing in a marriage. But ultimately, marriage is not this evolutionary idea that helps us maintain our culture. It's given by God to express something greater, to express something more. And so some questions is, before we dive in is, do you tend to overvalue marriage or undervalue marriage? Do you expect and long for a significant other or maybe the person you're even married to to fulfill you and complete you in ways that they were never designed to do? Do you see marriage as outdated or unnecessary? And we need to avoid some of these pitfalls in order to see the bigger picture of what marriage is pointing toward. And so in this first sermon on marriage, I really wanna answer the question simply, what is marriage? And we're gonna answer this from three different vantage points, look at this in three different ways. And then in two weeks, we're gonna come back and get really deep and practical on how we live this out in marriage. But the first idea is that marriage is a model of a greater principle. Marriage is a model of a greater principle. Before we can dig into how wives and husbands should relate to one another, we need to understand that what's actually being expressed to us, the the overall idea and the big idea of this uh, entire passage is verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The idea is that we submit to one another in love and in care as an act of worship to Jesus. And we have to understand that the call between a man and a woman in marriage is rooted in this greater principle. Now, I want you to notice the I-N-G on the end of submitting for you grammars. That is a participle, which is a, which, uh, is a, is a, a verb being used like an adjective. And if you back up a few verses, you see that there are a couple of different, a few different words, a few different participles that are all expressing what it means to be filled by the Spirit. So to be filled by the Spirit, we will, the way we address each other changes, the way that we speak to each other, uh, the way that we sing to one another. You don't wanna hear me sing, but I'll do it. And you actually, one of the funniest things I've heard recently is that Rick and the sound team set the level of the sound based on how loud I sing. So I'm sorry. Um, They're drowning me out for you, for your sake. Um, So singing to one another. Um, Also the way that we make music or make melody to one another, the way that we're giving thanks and also that we're submitting to one another in love out of reverence and worship of Jesus. These are all vivid pictures of Jesus's work in us. The gospel word is a word spoken in truth. It is is something that should be sung. It's something that's beautiful. We give thanks to God for all that he's done. And probably the clearest way that we image the gospel to one another is through submitting to each other. The word submitting is the idea of arranging our life around another. It's saying, I'm going to lay down my preferences. I'm gonna come up, it's really two senses. I'm gonna come alongside you as an equal, but I'm gonna lay down my own interests for your own. I'm, I'm gonna lay down my interests for your sake. I'm gonna put you above me. And this is actually the way that Jesus lived toward us and the way that Paul encourages the Philippian church to live in Philippians chapter two, verses three and four. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is something that the spirit has to do in us. It's something that is very unnatural to us because we all want to seek our own good, our own priorities, what we think is best. But what the Spirit does in us is create a demeanor that's not brash, that's not aggressive, that's not 
self-seeking. And we think about that principle, that's a principle for success in any relationship. If you can learn to be a friend who's not brash or aggressive and doesn't have to get your way all the time, you'll be a really good friend. If you can be a roommate who's not putting your roommate on blast because of what they keep leaving their clothing in the middle of the living room floor, you might be a pretty good roommate. You can take this into the way that you work or in your community group that maybe scheduling doesn't work out, but I'm going to shift my life a little, around a little bit because I love these people. And also we see this in a marriage. As we submit to one another, we love and care for one another. So whether you're married or single or widowed or divorced, you can do this. And marriage actually models and gives a picture of how we can submit to one another in love because relationships are where self-centeredness goes to die. Relationships are where self-centeredness goes to die. If you want to be self-centered, you can be alone and be self-centered. It's really difficult to be in a relationship with someone for a very long time if you're constantly looking for your own good alone. Our greatest issue in any relationship is our own self-centeredness. And we do this a couple of ways. We do this by looking too highly at ourselves. It's my way or the highway. My dad always said that. It's my way or the highway growing up. It's, it's, and of course, he's my dad. He could do that. Um, it's, it's my needs, my desires, my schedule, my problems always take center stage. And so I expect everybody else to bend their lives around me. And if it doesn't work out in my schedule or my, I'm just not going to do that or be a part of that. There's another way we do this by thinking too low of ourselves. And actually what happens is that self-pity becomes self-centeredness. We make our problems and our issues the constant topic of conversation. Now, this does not say that we're not vulnerable. This doesn't say that we don't be authentic and open with each other. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be seasons of our lives where we are a gaping wound. It doesn't mean that, but it means that we need to be careful that we don't make ourselves center stage. Relationships help us see our own self-centeredness and through sustained and repeatable interaction with other people, our self-centeredness gets worn down. Because once we get into conflict with someone, it creates opportunities for us to sacrifice. It creates opportunities for us to lay down our pride and our selfishness. It creates opportunities where we're just not gonna get our own way. And so every relationship can reflect this when it's centered on Jesus because it gives us opportunities to deny ourselves for the good of others by reflecting on how God has done this for us. And what marriage does is models this principle. It models this. So whether you're married or not, you can look at the institution of marriage and see, this is a way that I can love and serve other people. Marriage is, is rooted in the idea of covenant, which again, we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. Is there are vows that are made uh, in a marriage covenant that says, this is a permanent relationship. This, this, is, this is somebody I'm going to be with through thick or thin. No matter what, I'm going to die to myself for the good of this person. You know, when Amy and I first got married, she thought I could do no wrong, I hope. Um, she, 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 she married me because she, she liked me, obviously. Like, we, we, got, we got married, um, but, but very quickly, she realized I'm the most annoying person ever because she was the one person who could see every single one of my flaws. She could see all the times I didn't take the trash out. She could see how no matter how much I denied it, I would tuck my, take my socks off and tuck them into the couch. I don't know why. It was more that I was sitting there. I took them off and then just like over time, they found their way into the couch. I don't know. Um, I, would, I would lose my temper sometimes. Why do, you, why do you chew that way? Like there's all these things you just look at someone and you become really annoyed by. And the same would happen in her. I began to realize as I, I would see this, but what I began to realize over time was I'm just used to getting my way. 
I, I, I'm not, I, I'm used to doing what I want when I want. I'm, I'm not really used to considering that I need to do this or clean that or think this way because it's really just about me and my schedule. Marriage images how we love and submit to other people saying, I will sacrifice for your good. I'll, I'll do this when I don't feel like it because, because I'm not going to go anywhere. It means I'd rather be with you than be right. It means I'd rather spend time with you and make you happy than get my own way. And what this does is it models for us as the church how we can live. So whether you're married or not, you, you can see something and say, you know what, this, this might not fit my schedule, but I'll bend it because you matter to me. You know, I may not enjoy rock climbing or playing basketball or, or sitting and knitting or sitting over coffee, but I'm gonna go because you're there. I may struggle with this aspect of your personality, but I'm gonna ask God to work on me, not work on you. Now, there are two caveats to this idea of submitting to one another, and this applies both to every relationship, but also to marriage. It's not unconditional. Let me be very clear. It is not unconditional. We don't do so if it disobeys God. We don't submit to one another. We don't serve another person in a way that is going to disobey God or his word, very clearly. We, we, don't, we don't submit ourselves to another person if it's cruel or wrong to do so or dehumanizing. In fact, I think that's very unloving. And I think the most loving thing you can do in that moment is challenge and work through and wrestle with a hard issue. The second idea is it's not mindless. No one in any sort of relationship should ever be a doormat. It doesn't mean that you can't express yourself. It doesn't mean that you can't have healthy discussion or debate or disagreement. In fact, I do believe you need healthy boundaries in any relationship. This is not an excuse to be abusive or to ever be taken advantage of. But, but how does marriage show you how to submit to and love others? How can you give yourself? The second way we look at marriage is marriage is a reflection of a greater love. It's a reflection of something greater, a greater way that we've been loved. This, this whole passage really is undergirded by the fact that we are people made in God's image. God's biblical vision for what it means to be his people. And we've talked about this multiple times, but to be made in God's image means that we reflect his characteristics and his glory and that we represent him in the world. So I wanna read the passage where this comes from in Genesis chapter one, which we're gonna go through the book of Genesis in the fall. I'm super excited. You're gonna see how broken and messed up humanity is as we do so. Uh, but Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27 says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now listen to this, male and female, he created them. Now the word man there sometimes, sometimes trips us up. Think humanity, think mankind, humankind. In other words, in order for us corporately as humans to fully reflect the image of God, we need both males and females, men and women to flourish. We need both genders to flourish as God has created us. And the per the, God's purposes for us cannot fully be expressed if men and women are not both complementary and interdependent upon one another. As I said earlier, it says in the creation story, it said it was not good that Adam was alone. And so God created a helper. Now that word helper, I want to be very clear, is not assistant. It doesn't mean that he's just, that someone's just handing Adam tools. This is a co-laborer. This is someone who comes alongside Adam as, as Eve was taken from Adam's rib, from his side, who comes along on his side and compliments and fills in the gaps where Adam is lacking. 
As, and this is what it took for them to be together, needing each other, completing God's image-bearing work. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the church, we need men and women working alongside each other, side by side, each doing our part for the gospel to go forward. And the way we see this uniquely in a marriage, we see here is it describes the husband as the head. Well, if, the, if the husband is the head, what does that make the wife? The body. And there's some unique and beautiful imagery here. And we see this through the idea of creation that a head is worthless without a body. And a body is worthless without a head. They need one another. And so we see this idea of Adam being the head as the one who was first created. The word head there means source. It's like a river head that's giving life, that's, that's giving life. So if you think of a river head, it is, is sending water to all the other tributaries and lakes uh, that, are, that, that it feeds. There's this idea of life coming from Adam, Eve coming alongside him as his equal, as the body. And so we see men and women equally human, equal in dignity, value and worth, walking along, alongside each other, but also complementing each other. The man, the, the husband, Adam, as the head, was called to give loving and sacrificial leadership as his wife walks alongside and works alongside him to the glory of God. Praying with him, considering with him, wrestling with him with a soft heart, considering how God is leading him and joining him in that work, going with that loving leadership. And in a marriage, we need both. We need both of these because both of these realities image Christ. We see in a marriage, the wife is submitting to a husband like, not like he's Christ. And we're very clear, the husband is not God. That's really bad teaching. Some people have taken it that far. But as an act of worship to Christ. And what she's doing by saying, I'm going to love you and I'm going to serve you and I'm going to join you in this work is she reflects Christ's love who was an equal to the Father who submitted to the will of the Father. In the same way, the husband is to love as Christ loved the church, not by being Jesus, but in the same manner. And so you see the beauty of this because for the husband to lead his wife as Christ loved the church, what does he have to do? He has to die. He has to lay himself down for her sake. Jesus died so that you and I could live. And so a loving, sacrificial husband will say, whatever it takes so that my wife can flourish, I'll do it. Whatever it takes so that my wife can thrive, whether that means laying down my career, laying down my preferences, laying down my desires, where we live, not getting my way, being the first one to repent, even if I think I'm 51% right, doing all of that so that she sees Jesus's love modeled and she longs for him more. John Stott says this mutual giving of ourselves, both submitting and loving sacrificially recognizes the worth in another person. And he says, now to lose oneself that the other may find his or herself, that is the essence of the gospel of Christ. See, if we wrestle with this text, we begin to see its beauty. Any, any husband who ever looks at this text and sees this as an excuse to throw around his weight or to be domineering honestly doesn't understand what it means to be loved by Jesus. We're gonna get into the specifics of how a husband and a wife interact in two weeks. But marriage reflects so that we see something else. It's a bit like looking through a looking glass. You can see the looking glass itself, but the looking glass is meant to magnify 
something else you're trying to see in the distance. And so the last reality is that marriage is a signpost for a greater reality. Marriage is a signpost for a greater reality. In verse 32, we see the word mystery. And when we look at the word mystery, this is not like a whodunit. This isn't like death on the Nile or, or murder, you know, like any of those Agatha Christie books. It's not, that's not the mystery we're talking about. We're talking about something that was hidden in the counsel of God's will that is now being able to be seen. And so what is, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that marriage points to a greater reality, which is Christ and the church. This is in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What he's saying is it's not about your marriage. It's not about your singleness. It's not about your widowhood. It's about Jesus's love for the church. And this is why we believe marriage is so sacred. This is why we believe it's more than just a committed relationship between two people. But in Matthew 19, Jesus ups the ante on what marriage looks like, and the Pharisees come away saying, man, it'd be better if we just weren't married. Because it's pointing to this greater reality. When I, when I perform a wedding, I always say that these people who are entering into these vows don't take them lightly or irreverently. Because marriage takes a man and a woman and joins them together in a way that points them toward a love found in Jesus. And there are a few ways that it does this. It points to this greater reality by the fact that it's meant to be inseparable. It's meant to be inseparable. Verse 31 says that, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. The old way of saying this in like the King James was to leave and cleave. Cleave sounds like a doesn't sound very good, but to leave and to cleave, to hold on to this two becoming one. And we, so we see the depth of love that this is pointing toward. And what this means is saying, I'll never forsake you. I'll forsake all others. I, I will limit my options. There is no escape clause here. There are no yeah, buts. I am yours and you are mine. And this is what Christ has done for us that Jesus left his father and joined himself to us. He came after us with relentless love that led him to a cross, that we, he would die for us, and that when we put our faith and trust in him, we become one with him, and that he's never letting go. It's meant to be inseparable, and this is why when marriage vows are broken, it hurts so much. It's devastating because what was never meant to come apart is being ripped apart. And, my, and I, want to, I want to say this, if you've experienced that, or you're experiencing that, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you. I want you to know how much he loves you and he is with you as a comforter. The second way we see that marriage points towards us, that marriage points us to the gospel, is that it's imperfect. Marriage is not perfect. Marriage is not just something that God gave Christians. It's actually a creation order given as a common grace for men and women to come together so families flourish. And if we're honest, no marriage is perfect. My marriage isn't perfect. No one here's marriage is perfect. No one in the world's marriage is perfect. I don't care what Instagram says. In fact, I think there's an inverse correlation between the more you post out how much you love someone on Instagram, the less healthy your relationship is. That's a sermon for another day. But there's no healthy marriage, no honestly perfect marriage out there. God's desire is that he would redeem every person man, woman, and child on this planet. And that's our hope in, in Jesus is that every person in these neighborhoods that are around us would come to trust Jesus Christ. And if those people are married, that this relationship between a man and a woman would eventually reflect the self-giving sacrificial love of Jesus. 
They're imperfect. But that's the picture of what God has done in us. He takes you as you are, believing that over time through this relationship, you'll be refined and restored and you'll eventually grow into a more healthy and thriving person. Jesus does that by taking all of us, all of our sin, all of our screw-ups, all of our struggles. And what does the text say he does for us? He cleans us, he loves us, he cherishes us, he nourishes us, and he presents us as holy. The imperfection in our marriages point to Jesus. The last way we see this that it points to the gospel is that our marriages are incomplete. I don't know who ever saw the movie Jerry Maguire. Tom Cruise lied to Renee Zellweger. He, she did not complete him. Oh, the famous line is, you complete me. And she's like, oh, they live happily ever. That's a lie. Romantic love and marriage is good. It's beautiful. It's joyful. It's something that you can desire. But it's also incomplete because there's a greater and better reality waiting on the other side. So there's great hope here. So no matter how great your marriage might be, you have a better love in Jesus. Maybe you're in a marriage that's not all that you hoped it would be. There's a greater love for you in Jesus. Even if you never find the person that you long for, the right person, singleness can be great game when you understand that you've been perfectly loved as the bride of Christ. If you lose the one person you thought you loved more than anything in the world, Jesus promises you that he'll be enough. Maybe only one person in a marriage is a Christian. You can be an example of Christ's love by sacrificially loving your spouse. Maybe your marriage ended. Maybe you were betrayed or left or abandoned. God is a comforter to you, and I want you to know that Jesus will never leave you. Maybe you're the one who sinned in an inexplicable way that ended your marriage. I want you to understand there's forgiveness for you in the blood of Jesus Christ, and there's grace for you to walk back and make things right. As I said, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna dig down into the practical dynamics of marriage and singleness and, and how all this works out. But just a few things, I want to, questions I want you to reflect on as we close. First, how are you submitting yourself to others? Just generally as a principle, how are you submitting your life to other people? Secondly, if you're married, is your marriage reflecting Christ's love and sacrifice? Are you loving your spouse in a self-giving way or are you tending to make it about you? If you're single or widowed, how, how is your longing or desire drawing you to Christ? And then lastly, are you resting in Christ's love for you as a part of this church? You are deeply loved. Jesus loves you, not future you. Not, not you when you figure everything out. Not you when you finally find a relationship. Not you when your marriage is perfect. Not you when you read your Bible every day. But he loves you right now in your weaknesses and in your sins. And he has a promise and a purpose to make you holy. Let's pray.